This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. The year's most memorable interviews and listeners' calls on Fight Back with Libby Snymer. Welcome to the best of Fight Back for 2022 with Jane Brown. Good afternoon and welcome to the best of Fight Back 2022, part two of our look back at the year that was. Well, talk about an internet outage. Some 12 million Canadians were affected by the Rogers internet crash on Friday, July 8th which continued for many into that weekend. It was certainly a crisis for Canadians. Regular internet users were affected, but so was the healthcare and 911 emergency system, along with disruptions for small business and the banking industry. After normal operations resumed, we reflected on what went wrong, even as the CEO of Rogers apologized profusely for the massive inconvenience and promised the system would be safeguarded from this kind of disruption from happening again. Peter Mugrich is senior editor of Zoomer magazine. Daryl Bricker is CEO of Ipsos Public Affairs. And David Kravitz is chief membership officer at CARP and vice president here at Zoomer Media. Libby started the conversation with the Zoomer squad by asking if some demographics, like older seniors, were left more vulnerable during the Rogers outage. Seniors, first of all, are vulnerable all the time. When there's a blizzard, seniors are more vulnerable. When something goes down, seniors are more vulnerable because it's a higher population in absolute numbers of people who are alone, possibly isolated, don't have a support system nearby, are less mobile. So it is very serious. And I think we have to take a hard look at um, what is the infrastructure really and how solid is it really? This was a 15 hour. This wasn't just a, a short term glitch where you could go to your neighbor and get something done. This was like a massive nationwide problem. And uh, I'm not surprised that lives were at risk uh, as a result of this. Daryl, is this going to involve permanent damage to Rogers? Well, I think the, the, uh, the, the potential damage is much bigger than just to Rogers. I mean, if this is at the tail end or even midway through, you know, history will tell us of a whole series of things that just don't seem to be working in this country that are basic infrastructure. So if this was just, the, you know, this, an, an outage by Rogers and everything else was going fine, and remember, Rogers is a federally regulated institution uh, by the, the, the CRTC, uh, but this follows on the line, along with airports not working, the passport system not working, hospitals, you know, emergency rooms not working, a whole bunch of things that are considered to be basic services not working. And what this does is adds up to the sense that uh, something's not going right in this country. And it's just kind of one more piece of evidence that uh, are putting people on the, uh, giving people the view that this country is not on the right track. So it's, I think it's more about, it's about much more than just the outage that took place. I totally agree with you, but even on the outage that just 
took place, Peter. I mean, you know, we've all been uh, bundling because it's cheaper that way. We've been cutting the cord. We've been getting rid of our landlines uh, and and even older people are have been doing that. So do you see a backlash against that? Yeah, the the problem with the backlash is uh, where are you going to go? You know, like um, <laughs> Tweedledum go and Tweedledee. To, you're going to go to Bell, and then it's going to happen to Bell, or you're going to go to Bell, and then Rogers is going to offer an enticing package for you to go back. So there's really there's really very little competition in Canada, and and if if the um, the Rogers Shaw deal goes through, there'll be even less. And um, I think what happens is when you have these huge uh, monopolies and something goes wrong with one of them, there's no, <laughs> there's no one else to pick up the slack. There's no one else to turn to. Like half the nation is, is off their phone and half can't go um, to the, you know, buy stuff unless they have cash. And, you know, people, especially people living in rural uh, Canada, which a lot of older people, they're, they're, what happens if if they have a heart attack? Like, how do they connect? Exactly. You, there's no way you can't you can't sort of go out near rooftop and shout, or because there's no one there to hear you. So um, th- these kind of things happen when you you have so few players owning the whole market. And um, I, I hope the Roger Shaw deal is affected by this. I hope it's taken into consideration. I don't think it will, but um, we certainly need more players than than these two giants. The length of time it took them to issue either um, an alert or even a, a, and much later an apology, and uh, it, it they just they don't care. They they have half the market and they don't care. I wanted to extend this to beyond you know just Rogers and looking at Rogers. I mean, it's like blaming a cat for killing a bird, right? <laughs> uh, a cat's just going to do what a cat's going to do. The real issue that we're dealing with here is the regulatory environment allowed this situation to occur. The real issue that we're dealing with in this country that allowed this situation to be created was a regulatory system that does not support competition in this country. Daryl Bricker, CEO of Ipsos Public Affairs, Peter Mugridge, senior editor of Zoomer magazine, and David Kravitz, chief membership officer at CARP and vice president here at Zoomer Media. Libby's conversation with the Zoomer squad after the historic Rogers internet outage on July 8th. This is part two of Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back 2022. I'm Jane Brown. Tennis fans received some big news this past summer as Serena Williams confirmed she would retire from professional tennis after this year's U.S. Open. The 40-year-old 23-time Grand Slam champion planned to wrap up her career at the tournament she first won back in 1999 after turning pro in 1995. Serena has won the most Grand Slam singles titles by any player in the Open era, and the second most of all time behind Margaret Court's 24 titles. There have been lively debates about whether she is the greatest athlete of all time, let alone the greatest woman tennis player. 
Serena Williams is a trailblazer, not just for women, but for Black women and people of color in tennis. The news broke as Serena was competing here in Toronto at the National Bank Open. Libby spoke about Serena's legacy in tennis with Simon Bartram, head coach of Toronto Lawn Tennis Club and coach for Tennis Canada, and Carl Hale, tournament director for the National Bank Open. Well, I think it was expected. Everybody knew that uh, the retirement was imminent, um, but we're really excited to have her here. It's the last time we expect a very warm reception for her from all the fans and, you know, wishing her well in in that match. Simon, uh, you have coached a lot of uh, young girls and, and, and women. How would you say, how important is Serena's example? Well, I can't imagine she's anything other than a, a, a huge uh, example and uh, influence for every, all the players I've coached. My goodness, she's she's 40 years old. She's been doing this forever. Uh, her and her sister both have been um, uh, have been the, the forefront of the women's tour for so long and been so good for so long. They are um, and they're and, and Serena's accomplishments are as you mentioned at the outset: 23 Grand Slam titles. She's been chasing that 24th. You know, to tie Margaret Court's record for for a few years now, and we're sort of all cheering her on to get that to happen. And it just seems like, you know, here I guess she's giving herself one more shot at the U.S. Open, perhaps. But um, yeah, I mean, all the all, all the, to answer your question, yeah, all the girls are they just marvel at her level um, for so many years, and it's a, it's 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 an amazing level. She plays at a very high level, has has played at a very high level for a long time. The last time she won a Grand Slam was in 2017, and she was pregnant, Simon. <laughs> I don't believe, I know, I, I can remember the chatter at that time, too. Um, yeah, a, a, an amazing accomplishment. Like, again, um, to what she's, what she's been able to do, um, and, and uh, that playing, playing an event, winning a Grand Slam title when you were pregnant is, is quite remarkable. Um, and... Um, and yeah, a lot of the girls just kind of shake their heads with like, how is that even, how is that even possible? And, and um, again, another one of her phenomenal uh, achievements. It's a new thing altogether for uh, women who've had children to come back and to play. And uh, I mean, I guess, you know, in Serena's case, her, her pregnancy was dangerous. And uh, part of it is that she's been given a go ahead that it is going to be all right for her to try to have another child. But is that um, a major, I, I mean, I would think it's a major evolution, Carl. Yeah, I mean, you know, there's uh, Tatiana Maria, who's a semifinalist at Wimbledon, has two children. It was actually her birthday yesterday, and she's she's here playing the event as well. But, you know, there's there's quite a few players that have children on the tour, uh, on, the, on the women's tour, and it's great to see. Um, we want to encourage it because we want these players to continue their careers because they, they love playing so much, you know. And with Serena, you know, we see her with her daughter after the match. She tweeted something out yesterday. And it's just nice to see, you know, mothers with their, with their children. And as everybody knows, it's really important that they have the time and they, they can do it successfully on the tour. Uh, Serena and her sister Venus, they are trailblazers for women of color uh, in the sport, people of color. And uh, they come from very modest backgrounds. Uh, there's that movie out of Compton 
in California, which is the, the neighborhood that they grew up in and how they broke into tennis, which was pretty lily white. Uh, Carl, uh, you're native Jamaica, right? Yes, that's correct. And so what are your thoughts on that aspect? Well, you know, we we were talking about it, and uh, you you know we will never see in our lifetime, you know, two sisters that have come out of the ghetto in the U.S. to be iconic tennis players. So this is, you know, it's never happened before, and they had such long, you know, amazing careers, you know, winning all of these Grand Slam titles. I think it's I think it's time to celebrate her because she's done so much for so many people. And if you if you as a tournament director, we get a lot of notes um, to give to her, you know. And people just they just love Serena. Carl Hale, tournament director for the National Bank Open in Toronto, and Simon Bartram, head coach of Toronto Lawn Tennis Club and coach for Tennis Canada. Thank you for joining us for part two of the Best of Fight Back 2022, a look back at the second half of the year that was. Coming up next, the death of Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth and the mourning period that followed. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. It was the best of times on the best of Fight Back for 2022 with Jane Brown on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back to this special edition of the best of Fight Back, part two of our look back at the year that was 2022. After reigning over Britain and the Commonwealth for more than 70 years, Queen Elizabeth II died at her beloved Balmoral Castle in Scotland on September 8th. She had reached the age of 96 and celebrated her Platinum Jubilee in June. The Queen worked up until two days before her death, receiving both outgoing British Prime Minister Boris Johnson and the incoming Prime Minister Liz Truss at Balmoral. It was a long goodbye, over 10 days of mourning in Britain for the Queen, ahead of her state funeral on Monday, September 19th. It was also a time of reflection on Queen Elizabeth's 70 years of service and a period to become acquainted with the new king, Charles III. While filling in for Libby, I was joined by a special panel to talk about the passing of Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II and what her reign meant to Canadians. David Tarrant is a conservative strategist and vice president, National Strategic Communications at Enterprise. Anthony Wilson-Smith is president and CEO of Historica Canada. And David Coletto is CEO and founding partner of Abacus Data. I asked David Coletto first, what do you make of the tradition and ceremonies around the Queen's death? I find it interesting. I think it's, there's a lot of history uh, behind the, the ceremonies and the process. Frankly, it feels somewhat arcane to me. And, and you know, even having uh, the new king have to, you know, pledge to defend the Protestant faith. Um, it was interesting being let in and seeing um, that, that ascension uh, process behind what has historically been behind closed doors. 
um, I think was it was a great for the public to be to to be uh, included. But I do think that I think there's a lot of people watching who are wondering why we have to go through all of this and, and what you know the purpose is and whether there's opportunities to modernize some of uh, you know the uh, the ceremonies behind what is a an important institution, but one also that is I think for many Canadians and I, I assume other subjects of the Commonwealth one that they don't quite understand why we still have. No, and I appreciate your honesty and your perspective as a millennial, uh, David Coletto. And uh, it's not unlike what my children are feeling, uh, you know, grown adults in their late 20s, feeling very similarly to the way you're feeling. Um, I'm going to take your question and put it to Anthony Wilson-Smith at Historica Canada. Why all this pomp and circumstance over 10 days? Well, I'll tell you what it reminds me of is an important political distinction between Britain and Canada, among others, and the U.S., which is that in the U.S., all of the pomp and circumstance and ceremony and everything else are concentrated in the office of the person who's elected, the president. Whereas in Canada, or of course with the Queen, you know, or now the King in the U.K., we split that off. So it's possible, therefore, and, you know, I prefer the way we do it because it's possible here, for example, to argue with, and as I'm sure, as I hear Mr. Polyev has this morning, you know, to say some harsh words about the political leader of the country without sounding as though you're dumping on the whole country. We see all the time in the U.S. that people who criticize the president are accused of being disloyal to the entire country. We don't do that. I think there's a pretty clear sense, and I, you know, David's kind of alluding to it, that uh, we're seeing, you know, something we will not see again, that there won't be anybody else with a singular impact on so many countries, including, for that matter, probably the, you know, the one of her birth. Um, it's, you know, the other question is, and I'll, we'll have more time to get on well now, but, you know, if you don't have a queen or you don't have the monarchy, what do you have? So if you elect a president and a republic instead, then you're electing someone, and then you get back to the same issue before. I remember talking about this to a governor general years ago, and, you know, if not this, then what? That's the big question to mm. come next. David Tarrant, uh, what are your thoughts on all that is going on over these 10 days of mourning? Well, you know, Jane, I think there's a fundamental uh, tension we see in, in uh, our society and in other countries uh, about the, kind of the role of tradition and traditional institutions versus uh, a sense that, you know, um, we should we should turn the page on those traditions because we have it all figured out with the kind of social values we have right now. And in one 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 sense of the word, Queen Elizabeth, uh, you know, values that she represented constancy, service, a certain resoluteness. I think a lot of people feel it's almost sadly that 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 they are largely values of a bygone age, and maybe something that that we wish more people kind of embodied in today's society. Um, and, and you know, and so the whole notion of 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 that tradition, and, and and I take David's point fully. Some people don't see themselves in in the in these traditions, um, but there's a real value in in looking at um, the things that 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 that, uh, that that Queen Elizabeth II that she represented, that the monarchy represented, and what do you replace it with? Do you replace it with a sense that we have it all figured out, and the, and the social values and the political values that we have right now today? have it all figured out, and therefore, those, you know, those, the, the inherited wisdom and institutions and traditions of the previous generations should be discarded if they're inconvenient to our current social mores, or is there a way to actually grow and change while still respect kind of this wonderful inheritance we have? 
David Tarrant, conservative strategist and vice president of National Strategic Communications at Enterprise. Anthony Wilson-Smith, president and CEO of Historica Canada. And David Coletto, CEO and founding partner of Abacus Data. You're listening to part two of the Best of Fight Back 2022 on Zoomer Radio. I'm Jane Brown. In October, municipal election campaigns were in full swing across Ontario. Here in Toronto, John Tory was on his way to becoming re-elected for his third term as the city's mayor. At the beginning of the month, ahead of the October 24th vote, John Tory joined Libby on Fight Back to talk about the issues. As Libby pointed out to the Toronto mayoral incumbent, residents were becoming fed up, especially when trying to get around the city with gridlock and construction everywhere and overflowing waste bins. Libby asked John Tory, why isn't there better control of these city elements? We are making big efforts. We've created these construction hubs to coordinate the comings and going of the cement trucks and dump trucks and all those things that go with a growing city. But I think the real, uh, you know, culprit, if there is one that's caused uh, some of what you're talking about, is the amount of construction. And, and I'll divide them into three. I mean, the first is transit construction. You don't build $30 billion worth of transit, which we're finally doing after decades where we weren't building transit. You don't build that transit without disruption, number one. Number two, there is a civil construction. You know, you don't build uh, and have 70,000 people coming to the city of Toronto every year, which is true and not have the obligation to expand the water mains and expand the sewers and things like that. I think people understand that. And we're doing that work, which was postponed for years. And I won't postpone it anymore because it would be irresponsible to do that. And then finally, you have the residential and office construction that's taking place. And again, if there are 70,000 people coming to the city every year, record growth that is in, you know, in, in excess of that taking place in any other city in North America, then you have to have places for them to live and to work. And so those things are being built. And the way Toronto's put together, yes, you do have to come sometimes close lanes of traffic uh, because there is just not the opportunity on these small lots downtown, the way the city was built, uh, to say to people, park your cement trucks or park your uh, trailers on, on the site of the construction. And so I, I, I guess I'm, I'm trying, we, we are all trying our best. Uh, we're doing things like have uh, working until 11 o'clock or working 24 hours a day to get these things finished faster. But when we work till 11 o'clock or 24 hours a day, we get a lot of complaints about the noise. So you can't win, um, but the good news is this is a growing city. It's going to be continue to be a prosperous city with lots of jobs for young people. We're tackling transit and affordable housing, which causes uh, some construction disarray, and that's just what we're going to keep doing, and we'll try to manage these things as best we can. How long will it take to, to deal with these various issues that just make living in the city quite difficult? Well, I think, first of all, most people think the city is generally on the right track. It's a big, complicated city, and big, complicated cities and fast-growing cities, including Toronto, have big, complicated problems. And so none of them have, you know, instant solutions at hand for some of the big issues that we face. I guess people will have to ask themselves in the context of the election that's on, um, you know, do they want experienced people to try and deal with those as best one can, or do they want to sort of start over again? Uh, But I would say to you that all of these things are things that are under a very active, um, you know, action, which is to say, can we in some way modify the contract about the garbage cans to get better ones? Or can we ask the people that are contracted to produce them? Can they produce different ones that are better for 2022? And you, you can't just phone them up and say, well, 
change the garbage cans because there is a contract. And, you know, I believe that you have to respect the rule of law in that respect. And so I would say all of these things, I mean, the transit getting built, it's going to take, we've been very open about that. It's going to take seven or eight years to, to build it at least. But at least we're building it, Libby. And in past, uh, you know, administrations, the transit wasn't getting built. It just didn't get built. It, you know, a government would change and the plan would change. And there were big arguments and studies about the plan. We're building $30 billion worth of transit because of a partnership we entered into between the three governments. But it takes eight, ten years to build a huge transit. This is the biggest transit project in North America. It takes time to build those. And so I would just say that uh, some of them are going to happen faster than others. And everything will happen as quickly as it possibly can. But, um, you know, I think anyone who's being honest with you will say that in a big city with big flex problems and a huge city in terms of geography and population, there aren't too many easy instant solutions. All I want to do is move the city forward. And uh, I want to work with anybody who wants to work with me on the council or anywhere else. And we'll see if I get that chance on the 24th of October, because the voters will decide as between the 30 people that are running for mayor who they want. And uh, I'll stand by, of course, and accept with grace whatever that decision is. John Tory in conversation with Libby on October 3rd, ahead of his re-election October 24th. Some of the hottest and closest races in Ontario's municipal elections were for GTA mayors, including two former provincial party leaders who looked for and won jobs at that level. Former NDP leader Andrea Horvath became mayor-elect in Hamilton, and Stephen Del Duca in the city of Vaughan. The other former provincial leader, Patrick Brown, easily won re-election as mayor of Brampton. Patrick Brown and Stephen Del Duca spoke with Libby the day after the election. I, look, I've learned through many years and many election wins and a few unsuccessful election uh, attempts to never take anything for granted and to put your faith in the people that you're running to serve. And I'm really grateful that last night the people of Vaughan decided to put their trust and faith in me, and I'm looking forward to working as hard as I can for them. So what do you want to do there? Well, I said throughout the campaign, like literally from day one, that my number one goal is to tackle traffic gridlock. It's It's been bad here in Vaughan for a number of years. We've had a lot of growth up here. There's more growth that's scheduled to come. I do have a unique set of skills and experience given my time as transportation minister. And so I think fighting traffic gridlock is number one, especially as we continue to grow. Uh, I'll say another thing that's really become a hot topic lately. Vaughn has has historically been a very safe community, but in the last few months, we've had a pretty sharp increase in auto thefts. We've had some additional gun crime here. So I think community safety needs to be a top priority as well. And frankly, just working closely with the newly elected council to deliver for the people of Vaughn. Those are, those are my priorities. What I said throughout this campaign on the strong mayor's question was, and I stand by this, look, and I need to learn more about exactly what it entails, um, but if the province decides to extend that power to Vaughn, I get it. I understand that it may, on a case-by-case basis, be a power or an authority that might have to be used, but it seems to me that at the municipal level in particular, you have to take great care as a mayor to use a power that shuts out council and more importantly, shuts out neighborhoods, communities. Uh, We do need to build more housing, all forms of housing, purpose-built rental, deeply affordable units, uh, you know, uh, units for and housing for developmentally challenged individuals in this province, for seniors, uh, and at market housing. So there's a ton that we need to build. I'm going to wait and judge what we see today once I actually have a chance to dive into those details. And I'm looking forward to working with the province, with other municipalities, and frankly, even the federal government, 
to confront the housing affordability crisis that we have. Now let's bring in Patrick Brown, mayor-elect of Brampton. The race, your race, uh, was... I would say probably the nastiest race that was uh, going on, except for maybe the two brothers in Port Colburn. Um, so, uh, what is what's your conclusion of all of that, and and how do you move forward? Well, the great news is we won a massive mandate, one of the biggest victories in the in the city history. We have a massive majority around the council table, and so. You know, the politics of, of hate and mudslinging and negativity uh, were rejected in a resounding manner in in Brampton. You know, we had someone um, from Windsor, a paid political operative, and, and Nick Cavallis, who came in, not because he believed in any candidate, but because uh, I had uh, had disagreements with him in the, in the past. Um, and uh, he, he doesn't understand Brampton. He didn't understand that that type of, of hate and intolerance and Islamophobia um, is very much um, not welcome in our community. And so the result is really encouraging. It, it shows that in our city, um, the vast, vast majority of the city have have love in their hearts, not uh, not hate. And that type of toxic politics uh, um, is rejected. Okay, so what's your top priority then? So going forward, um, you know, I um, understand that Residents want more investments in public safety, and we have more calls to 911 than we have officers able to respond. So I really want to go to the region of Peel table and advocate for more resources for the Peel police so that um, our chief, uh, Nishan Derapa, has a better capacity to respond to both nonviolent and violent calls. Right now, he has to tier and prioritize which calls he can respond to. So I think with the growing sophistication of crime and how it's easier to steal a car than ever before, easier to smuggle weapons than ever before, we need to equip uh, our police with with the same resources and technology to respond. Patrick Brown, the re-elected mayor of Brampton and mayor-elect for Vaughan, Stephen Del Duca. This is part two of Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back 2022. I'm Jane Brown. Still to come, greedflation in grocery stores, along with Doug Ford's broken promise on the Greenbelt. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Zoomer Radio. Pulling no punches with the best of Fight Back 2022 with Jane Brown. Welcome back to our look back at the year that was. With 40-year high inflation this year, shoppers this past October were saying it was about time. European grocers had been freezing prices for months when it was announced in mid-October by Loblaws Galen Weston that Canada's largest grocery chain was implementing a three-month price freeze on Loblaws no-name products. This appeared to be good news for consumers, but many critics pointed out price freezes typically happen at the end of the year, and this was nothing more than a publicity stunt. And in fact, the announcement by the company's billionaire chairman just reignited the debate about whether the large grocers are using inflation as a cover for price gouging. The concept is called greedflation, and federal NDP leader Jagmeet Singh has been leading the conversation on it. 
An emotion by the New Democrats calling on Ottawa to investigate greedflation received rare unanimous support from MPs in the House of Commons. Since then, some of the top grocers have been answering questions posed by members of a Commons committee in Ottawa. Ellen Roseman is a consumer advocate and journalist. She joined Fight Back shortly after the no-name price freeze was announced and talked to with Libby about what it really means for grocery shoppers. A number of European countries are doing this, and I think the way people are feeling right now very discouraged when they go to the grocery store and they see the rising prices and they also see that the cost of uh, shelter is going up that they like to see some leadership from the food chains. And perhaps if uh, Loblaws, which is Canada's number one retailer in terms of volume, uh, does it first, maybe the others will feel they have to follow. So that's not a bad thing. But definitely, uh, we remember it wasn't all that long ago, maybe three years ago, the price fixing involving yeah. Weston Bread and uh, Loblaws. And they gave us all a $25 gift card, which didn't really you know, compensate many people for the amount of bread they bought over the years. So that's there. And also, uh, the um, uh, House of Commons is going to vote today on looking at, you know, uh, the uh, uh, prices of groceries and, and whether or not the supermarkets are taking, uh, you know, excess profits out of it. And there's also an agricultural food committee uh, looking into it. A lot of this is sparked by the NDP and their concerns for ordinary people and their and their household finances. And... Um, Another thing is that Loblaws is about to announce its third quarter earnings uh, this month, probably this week or early next week, and uh, this can help, I guess, pave the way for it. If the earnings look rather higher than people expected, uh, then they'll say, well, look at this step that we've taken. We're, we're freezing prices on 1,500 items for the next three months. I do want to point out that for many of us, we don't buy the yellow and black no-name items but we buy the President's Choice, which is also a house brand. But there's apparently 4,000 of those items, but none of those are being price frozen. Okay, well, and and my question also is, like, frozen at what level? Let me give an example. One of the few, uh, no, I, I buy a few no-name products, including no-name butter, unsalted butter. The price on that fluctuates from sometimes it's on sale, like for, for over $3, but it fluctuates between four and a half. And, and I guess we missed a sale. And the last time I was there, I saw it, it was just this weekend. It was like $7.50. It was really expensive, wow. more expensive than some of the brand name brands. Uh, and some of their stuff sometimes is more expensive than the brand name brand. So where is it frozen? Are you freezing it at at seven fifty for for a hunk of butter? Well, uh, thanks a lot. <laughs> yeah, apparently the uh, price freeze goes into effect next Monday. So maybe they'll be looking at what the price is right now during this week and freeze it there. But for many people, they're saying, well, food price inflation is coming down a little. You know, it was at a very very high rate, but there there are things mitigating it to some extent. It's still incredibly high, but uh, are we, you know, freezing this for three months at a time when food prices might be starting to trend down a little bit? Ellen, so I'm, I'm looking at the clock. We are basically out of time. So your predictions, where does this go? Does this turn out great for Loblaw or not so great? And what about us? Well, I think it will turn out great to Loblaws because they were number one. And if the other two big competitors, Sobe and Metro, do it, 
They might do it at an even better level, in which case Loblaws might be forced to uh, improve the offer, sweeten the offer, so to speak. But it is a way to at least tell Canadians that these grocery stores that you enter two or three times a week uh, are on your side, at least in one small area, and you can't uh, tell them not to do it because I think it's better PR if they do this kind of offer than if they don't, even if we have a lot of criticism about it. Ellen Roseman, consumer advocate and journalist. This is part two of Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back 2022. I'm Jane Brown. The Doug Ford PCs at Queen's Park made a lot of headlines this past fall, but not in a good way. First, there was their public tussle with the union membership representing 55,000 QP education support workers who walked off the job in a province-wide protest for two days. The Tories, under Premier Doug Ford and Education Minister Stephen Lecce, used the Constitution's notwithstanding clause to pass their controversial bill, called the Keep Students in Class Act, which imposed a contract on the workers and banned any strike action. But the Premier quickly realized public opinion was against him and offered to repeal the legislation if the union leaders would call off the strike and get back to bargaining, which they did, a move that was ultimately successful. Workers received and ratified 3.6% annual raises over a four-year contract. Before the compromise to get back to bargaining was reached between the PCs and union leaders, I was joined by our Tune Into the Town panel to discuss. Anna Bailau is a former Toronto City Councillor and a former Deputy Mayor. Lauren O'Neill is Senior News Editor at Blog TO. And David Crombie, a former Mayor of Toronto. It needs to be said that this is a tragedy that could be avoided. And it could be avoided by both sides. I, I don't understand why it's not moved, moved in, a, in a certain direction. That direction should be. Well, let me say first of all that that the the, the province by by talking about the, the notwithstanding clause has transformed a labor dispute into a constitutional issue, which is bizarre. They shouldn't be doing that. They're using it like it's taffy. Uh, the, the the notwithstanding clause is a very important part of the constitution and shouldn't be used in such a way. The way out seems to me, and I don't understand why it has not happened is that there should be compulsory arbitration between the two. If the two sides can't get together, then compulsory arbitration should be applied. And secondly, uh, the, the, the province should then withdraw its rest of the threat on the union, and it's going to take away its striking rights. Lauren, what do you think? I think that it's really dangerous to talk about taking away workers' right to fair and collective bargaining. Bargaining. I mean, I understand what parents are going through and what children have gone through in the last couple of years missing school. I mean, that's terrible. But like David said, he's he's taking a labor dispute and turning it into a constitutional issue. Even Justin Trudeau said that he wasn't in fan like a, a fan of what was going on. So I don't know what the solution is, but it's going to be really interesting to see what happens um, if the teachers and and then it looks like they are going to go on straight. They will be getting fined four thousand dollars a day. Right. QP itself will be fined five hundred thousand dollars a day. So this is like big money. I know that a lot of education workers probably can't afford to be throwing around four thousand dollars a day. Who can? Um, but the right to strike is pretty important. I think that a lot of people agree with that. So 
You, I think you misspoke there. You said teachers, right? And then oh, education it, workers. Education I'm so workers. sorry. I keep no, saying it's, that. It's, yeah. it's, it's, no, yeah. it's okay because some of uh, the education workers are like teachers in that they're assisting developmentally challenged children, children with autism, etc. So yeah. they they do have a sophisticated skill set, no oh, doubt. Sure. And custodians, I mean, uh, support staff of an office. Like these are all very functional, critical roles for schools. Right. Anna Bailao, your initial thoughts. Well, I, I, I agree with what's said. I mean, this is a serious, serious action that is being taken against workers' action. And I think we need to think about the impact that is going to ha- happen and, and, and is going to have on any labor negotiation in the future. What, what does this mean for the, for the workers' rights in this province, actually? Is this, is this the new normal? Uh, but it's uh, one thing that I would like to add is that I think this is also a symptom of what has been happening? You know, now everybody is talking about kids need to be in school. Well, kids needed to be in school for a long time before, and they weren't in school because of lack of investment, actually, because we were one of the jurisdictions that had kids at home the longest because the investments that needed to happen in our classrooms uh, to have, you know, uh, uh, the, the facilities to, to deal with the COVID weren't there as well. So I think you know, to say that it's all about the kids now, it's a little bit misleading because it hasn't been about the kids for a long time. David, is it a good idea to actually shut down the schools uh, in the event of tomorrow's strike? Well, I, I guess they'll have to make their judgments locally. Some, I gather some, some boards will be shutting them down. Some boards will keep, be keeping them open. And I think they're just making the judgment on the basis of their resources uh, available to them that if they don't have the resources, they can't open them. Some may have the resources and will. Um, so I, I, I think they have to leave it to their, to their judgment. Uh, but I think that it's in the hands of, of, the, of the province and the union to, to, walk, to talk through the mediator and, and have the mediator bring them together and, do, and, and, and bring about a, 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 an agreement that says uh, that there will be compulsory arbitration, the schools can go forward, while, while the arbitration is being done, uh, and secondly, that the, the the province pulls in its horns and 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 and, and says, look, we're, we shouldn't have used the the uh, uh, such a powerful weapon as the notwithstanding clause, and we withdraw it. That will make the peace. The kids will go back to school, and we can go back and be more sensible again. David Crombie, former mayor of Toronto, Anna Bailau, former Toronto City Councillor and Deputy Mayor, and Lauren O'Neill, Senior News Editor at Blog TO. They joined me hours before legislation was passed at Queen's Park to impose a contract on the education workers and ban their strike before it was later repealed. Now, when Doug Ford was campaigning for re-election as Ontario's premier during the spring, he promised he would not take any land from the Greenbelt for housing developments. But in November, Ford's Municipal Affairs Minister Steve Clark announced that the government is opening up 7,400 acres of the protected Greenbelt lands for new housing so developers can build 50,000 homes on that land. Clark also revealed 9,400 acres in different areas would be added to the Green Belt, in effect making the Green Belt 2,000 acres larger. When speaking with reporters, Premier Doug Ford was asked why he was going back on his promise. 
And he explained, we have a housing crisis that we didn't have four years ago because of the new immigrants who are arriving. And these people need places to live. While filling in for Libby, I was joined by a panel of experts and stakeholders for their reaction to this explanation. Tim Gray is executive director of Environmental Defense. Gideon Foreman is a climate change and transportation policy analyst at the David Suzuki Foundation. And Mike Schreiner is leader of the Green Party of Ontario. Jane, this is completely outrageous that the premier would break his promise not to touch the Greenbelt. I mean, the Greenbelt is there to protect the farmland that feeds us, to ensure that the green space and wetlands, we need to protect us from extreme weather events such as flooding, uh, and just also the places we love to visit and spend time with our families. And so this so-called land swap uh, isn't what it's cut out, what the premier says it is. I mean, essentially what the premier is saying, hey, you know what, we're going to protect some urban river valleys, something that absolutely should be protected. Matter of fact, I've been arguing the Greenbelt should be expanded to protect those river valleys. But people are going to build housing there anyway. And so, so that is just a red herring argument. The bottom line is, is the premier is opening the Greenbelt up for development, and he doesn't need to because we have sufficient land available already open for development. 350 square kilometers of Greenfield development um, is already approved, uh, and we should be developing on that land, not the Greenbelt. Gideon Foreman, go ahead. Oh, yeah, it's a disaster. I mean, uh, the whole idea of a Greenbelt is to afford permanent protection to sensitive lands forests, wetlands, agricultural areas, and now that's being destroyed. I mean, it was supposed to be permanent, and clearly the protection isn't permanent. And it's not just going back four years when that promise was made. A year ago, I have the Toronto Star clippings that I dug up this morning. A year ago, Minister Clark said, our government will not consider any proposals to remove or develop any part of it. A year ago, he was saying that. So uh, they're flip-flopping, and it's a disaster for the people of Ontario. Tim Gray, your impression of the of the promises that are the promise broke broken. Yeah, it's a promise from the premier, of course, which is important. People need to take that seriously and breaking it should have consequences. But it's also an undoing of the work of many governments over many generations, including conservative governments of um, Bill Davis and Mike Harris. You know, we have been trying to improve the planning system in Southern Ontario to better protect nature, protect our water, provide housing for a long time. This is like throwing a bomb into the middle of the entire planning system and then lying to the public that it's going to create houses that are affordable for people. None of those 300,000 people that are coming to the uh, Greater Golden Horseshoe are going to be buying more monster homes built on wetlands or farms uh, far from the city. They want to be living in downtown Hamilton. They want to live in downtown Waterloo. They want to live in downtown Toronto places where they can walk, um, where they can take public transit, and they want to be able to do so in a way that's affordable for them. And this government had an opportunity to change the rules to allow more building inside of the cities. city of Hamilton wanted that. city of Waterloo has been pursuing that. Halton wanted that. Toronto wants to do that. And he didn't give them those tools. Mm. Instead, he's opening vast areas of the Greenbelt to uh, single-family home development that will do nothing for affordability, destroys farms, and destroys nature. And, and how important is Ontario's farmland to the global food supply? You know, I mean, that would, might be kind of interesting to know as well, Gideon. Well, I can tell you that some of the land we have in southern Ontario is among the very, very best land in Canada. So it's a crucial, crucial 
area for producing food. And increasingly, we're seeing the importance of that. People have been saying that, you know, with climate crisis, um, it, you know, there's nothing more valuable than this farmland. And, and it's wonderful farmland. Think of the of the tender fruit that we grow in, in the Niagara region, for example, those peaches and plums and grapes. It's crucially important. So the idea, again, it just, it's just uh, unfathomable. And the other thing I would just add by way of final comment is, you know, the Greenbelt is so popular. Ecos Research did polling in August that 75% of folks in, in suburban areas want to see more protection for the Greenbelt. Uh, and it's not surprising. Tim Gray of Environmental Defense, your final comments. I think people really need to realize that this is a broad-scale attack on livability, uh, affordability, and the ecological quality of Southern Ontario. And this is a moment that everyone needs together and fight back. We have to stop the Ford government from moving forward to, to do this. Uh, it's really, really important we all work together on it. Tim Gray, Executive Director of Environmental Defense. Gideon Foreman, a climate change and transportation policy analyst at the David Suzuki Foundation. And Mike Schreiner, leader of the Green Party of Ontario. And that brings us to the end of our special Best of Fight Back 2022 on Zoomer Radio. We hope you've enjoyed reliving some of the highlights and lowlights over these past two days. And now we look ahead to 2023. I'm Jane Brown. Please join me tomorrow and the rest of the week leading up to New Year's Day when I will be filling in for Libby with new guests, new topics, and as always, your phone calls. You've been listening to the best of Fight Back 2022 with Jane Brown on Zoomer Radio. Produced for MZ Media Limited by Jane Brown, Justin Eacock, and Zeev Hadi. With technical production by Kelly Robotham. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.